Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so honored to introduce to the listeners Dr. Tonya Petit, who is a globally famous intersectional stigma researcher. She is an assistant professor of social medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she is also core faculty at the Center for Health Equity Research. Dr. Potit is an HIV specialist and has a clinical practice dedicated to caring for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, or LGBTQ persons. She's also worked at the Office of U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator as a Senior Advisor for Key Populations. Her research, teaching, and practice focuses on HIV and LGBTQ health disparities with an intersectional lens, paying attention to racial and gender disparities among socioeconomic disparities, um, including trans health as a major focus of her research. Welcome, Dr. Tonya Petit. I am so happy you were able to join us today. Thank you. It's a delight to talk with you. So I don't know if you realize that meeting you actually changed my life in many ways. So I, my memory of meeting you, I think this is where I actually met you, was in Vienna Mm -hmm. in 2010 at the International AIDS Society Conference. And my memory was you had a poster somewhat close to my poster Mm -hmm. and we were chatting and I thought you're awesome. Like everybody who meets you thinks you're amazing. And we kept in touch. And then you said, oh, I'm at, you were at Hopkins. You're like, oh, you should come to Hopkins. And I ended up coming and spending some time there as my postdoc. And that ended up meeting folks in Eswatini and Lesotho. And we ended up collaborating. That totally opened up a whole new pathway. And I, so I don't know if you know that you were this critical person. <laughs> Anyways, that's what I remember of meeting you in 2010. I think that's where we met by our posters. Yes, I do. I remember meeting you there. I remember it was the first international AIDS conference I'd gone to as a student presenting my own research and standing by a poster. And I was super excited to meet someone who was friendly and knowledgeable and interested in the same areas. And I think we just talked to each other. <laughs> <laughs> we were by the poster. I know, even if nobody comes to visit your poster at the AIDS conference, there's all these <laughs> cool people with posters near you. So you like, yeah. Oh, and I'm, I'm really going to miss uh, seeing you uh, this year's conference, but um, at least we're having this conversation. Uh, so I would love for you, I've introduced you, but I'd love for you just to tell the listeners if they were in an elevator with you for a couple of minutes and they said, hey, Dr. Petit. What kind of things do you do? How would you describe your work? 
I would boil it down to saying that I spend my time trying to understand and figure out how best to address what gets in the way of the best health possible for LGBTQ people. That's awesome. And where would you say, because I know you have a very exciting history, where would you say that if we were in a time machine and we went back and and you said, this is what I want to spend my life's focus on, where would we go? Wow. I feel like it's been a very meandering path that I couldn't say started with this particular trajectory. If I think, thinking about my focus on trans health, that's often what people are curious about because I'm not trans identified myself. Like, how do you end up doing this work? It was 1996. And I was in my first job as a clinician in New York City. I don't know if you even know this, Carmen, about me. And I was, did you know this? I kind of have a a memory that you lived in New York because I saw a really cool picture of you back then (laughs) on Facebook. (laughs) You had like some really good style. Like, I mean, you still do, but like, I remember being like, oh, wow, you're super fun, awesome like style back in New York City. Am I remembering something on Facebook with some cool shots of you in New York? And I was like, oh, she lived in New York. Yeah, it's totally possible. My friends in New York are like, okay, look, we have to get you together. So that was very helpful for style. But I had just finished PA school and I moved to New York and I was working at a methadone maintenance program and volunteering at an LGBT health center. And I didn't know much about transgender people or transgender health at all. And they had a weekly was it weekly or monthly transgender health and education program that I volunteered in and learned so much about the kinds of experiences that trans people have just trying to navigate the world and felt connections at those intersections of what it's like to be marginalized and to face barriers and stereotypes in efforts to just have a kind of life that many other people take for granted where you can go to the grocery store, go to a healthcare provider and expect to be treated with some dignity and respect. And that was incredibly important for my own personal development and surprisingly to me years later to my career development. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable that we're still at a place where trans people experience fear and barriers going to the bathroom, you know, all over the world. Absolutely. And struggle to be seen now in this moment where people are paying attention to the movement for Black Lives. And I see trans friends and colleagues fighting to be visible as Black trans people in a movement for Black Lives, which is disheartening at best. Yeah. And it's really one of the reasons I was so grateful that you would be coming to talk to us today, because you bring a really intersectional perspective about the way that stigma and discrimination impact people. The first question I wanted to ask you was, and it seems very obvious, (laughs) but you know, everybody has a different answer to it is why does stigma and discrimination matter? Why should we be putting our focus on it? I think it matters at every level. Stigma, I think, is a broad, I think of it as a broad umbrella term for all the ills of society. Racism, classism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, cissexism, transphobia, all the things that hinder us from being fully human. Mm. Both people who enact stigma lose their humanity and people who experience stigma, have their humanity challenged, and that has enormous implications for our health. I really appreciate that you, you point that out, that it's, it's, it's not always that we have to look at, oh, um, 
the person who's experiencing stigma as being the person that's harmed, but actually all of us are unable to realize the potential that we could if if we lived in a society that was based on social justice and equity. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned it earlier a little bit, but I was just wondering if you could maybe give the listeners an example of some forms of stigma and what they might look like in day-to-day life for people that you work with or that you do research with. Mm. I mean, I could walk you through <laughs> like a conceptual framework that I have in my mind. Sure. A conceptual framework or in the life of somebody, whatever, you know, you feel called to do. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I guess I've been in academia long enough to think in conceptual frameworks, but I'll try to speak in regular (laughs) English. (laughs) But I think of it as the ways that it plays out is like, you know, say you wake up in the morning and you're about to get dressed and you, we all have clothes that we feel comfortable in and, and that represents who we are. You mentioned me being stylish in New York. That's not usually my thing, being stylish. So that was a moment in time. (laughs) But say you feel most comfortable wearing clothes and with a gender presentation that you know is likely to result in rejection from family, from friends. So you either decide to be your authentic self and face that with the courage and strength that it takes to do that, or you decide to prioritize your safety and you hide part of yourself with the emotional and psychological contents, uh, consequences that come with that. Mm-hmm. And that's just before you even like mm. get outside, <laughs> right? You're still in your room. Like, you're still in your, in your room. You just woke up and you're just trying to like get ready to go to the world. And from there, it just goes on in terms of how you encounter people, what you anticipate, how you might anticipate people would treat you, how people do treat you what you have access to do. Like, is it safe for me to take the bus? Who's going to be on the bus? Is it the time when the school kids get out and they're going to make fun of me? Is there going to be someone who's going to be violent and attack me? When can I go to the grocery store? When are the fewest people there? And in my specific field, you're looking for a healthcare provider. Like, how do I find a healthcare provider that's going to treat me with dignity and respect? Once I get to the waiting room, if I even get there, are they going to call me by the right name? Are they going to use the appropriate gender? Are they going to reject me, mistreat me, ask me nosy questions? What's going to happen every time I leave the safety of my personal space to encounter other people? And then how do I take that in? How does that get embodied both psychologically and physiologically? And That's right, because one of your studies you're working on right now, maybe, I don't know if you want to share something about it with the listeners, is around how stigma has physiological effects. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, you have it right. So we are, there's a bunch of us. <laughs> On this gargantuan study, but the basis of the study is looking at how stigma gets embodied. So we're enrolling and following a cohort of Black and Latina trans women in the U.S. living with HIV and looking at how they experience stigma at the intersection of race, gender, and HIV status, how that gets embodied. And we're measuring salivary cortisol to do that as a stress biomarker as well as other measures of allostatic load and allostatic load sort of the wear and tear on the body related to stress mm-hmm. and following to them to see how that impacts their HIV related outcomes, both virally, but as well as comorbid conditions like heart disease and mental health. That's so important. I think if, I don't know what your perspective on this is, but I mean, do you think that if people know that stigma has these huge effects on people's mental health and their physical health. Do you think that would help to 
change the situation or why? I mean, that's maybe part A and B, why is stigma towards anybody, but let's say trans people, why, why are we still there? Why are people still stigmatizing in 2020? Ooh, the first one is much easier to answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, which is good because I forget what I, what the first question was. <laughs> this is why you don't answer, ask two questions at once. <laughs> Well, I heard your question to be like, does it matter? And I, I ask myself this question often. Like if I answer this question and I can demonstrate how stigma affects someone's health, does it matter? Mm-hmm. And I think given that I have spent 20 years as a healthcare provider and much less of that time as a researcher, I have to believe that the other people who enter the health professions enter it at minimum with do no harm, but ideally to improve the health and well-being of the people that they care for. And so understanding that the ways that people are treated in the world, as well as in the health facility, has enormous impacts for their health means that we do something about it, right? It's not like we go, oh, well, some people have heart attacks and some people don't, and that's just too bad. That's not what healthcare providers are supposed to do, right? We go, mm-hmm. how can we figure out why some people have heart attacks and some people don't? And what can we do to prevent unnecessary death or heart attacks or disease or morbidity among people. And so if we understand that how we treat people has a huge impact on their health, then we are ethically, morally obligated to respond to that information. Mm. I wonder if you could share with the listeners your uh, recent article that is so important that talks about the roots of some of the COVID-19 health disparities experienced by African-Americans in the U.S., Yes, I was excited to partner with some really amazing people on this article, one of whom you've already interviewed, uh, Laurent Nelson, mm-hmm. um, Greg Millette, and uh, Chris <laughs> Beyer and I worked together on this article that looked at the impact of syndemics on how COVID-19 impacts Black communities. And we took it out of the academic sort of notion of syndemics where we think about these multiple co-occurring conditions that reinforce one another and look at and look at it in terms of hopefully language that everybody could relate to, we know that racism is embedded into the structure of the United States, which is where I live. We know that it was the country was founded by based on the labor of enslaved people. We know that after hundreds of years of official slavery ended, that we have we still have mortgage redlining, we have Jim Crow laws, um, we have implicit and explicit bias, we have mass incarceration. I could just keep going. And we have political institutions and politicians who ensure that those social disparities remain in place. And I have to say, it also feeds into global capitalism. Mm -hmm. And together, that means that you have more African-Americans who are living in poverty, who are in low-wage jobs, and you have the health consequences associated with that, like higher rates of diabetes and heart disease and those kinds of things. And therefore, they are all also more vulnerable to COVID-19 because they're now, quote unquote, essential workers, also known as low-wage workers with no health insurance and underpaid, Mm -hmm. um, so more likely to be exposed. And they live in states where conservative leadership is more likely to open up early and open Mm. up restaurants and bars and send people out into the world where they're more likely to be exposed to COVID-19. And they're more likely to have underlying conditions caused by those social disparities that make them more likely to get sick when they do get COVID-19. And it all comes together 
with a syndemic force that is deadly. So I really, I mean, I appreciate the scope of your work and how you look at a range of different ways that different kinds of stigma and including historical consequences and ongoing effects of racism, as well as LGBTQ stigma are leading to all these different health disparities. Like you said, also diabetes and hypertension and COVID. And I know a lot of your work is around HIV. And so if we know all of this, which you've very clearly explained, my last single question is, what can we do about it? What can the listener who could be in, you know, could be an academic or not an academic, what could other people who are listening to this do to be part of a solution? That's a great question. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I want to ask you more about, I know the solutions are complex, but if someone's listening to this, maybe as they're walking their dog and I was like, wow, it sounds so big. How how can I be part of a change? Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful time to ask that question because I think there's so many people around the world that want to be part of a big change that's happening in response to police brutality in the United States and and other countries. I think that everybody can do something. If it's as small as when you see stigma happening, and you will, I think if we pay attention around us, interrupting it, learning how to, to interrupt stigma when you see it happening, whether the person or group that's being stigmatized is present or not, but not allowing that to be in the atmosphere is a step that everybody can take. And then wherever you have your piece of power in the world, hopefully most of us have it in the voting booth, if nowhere else. Mm -hmm. We have power to make change there. We have power to make change locally. We have power to teach our family and friends about stigma and how it impacts people. We have power to learn more about it ourselves through like reading amazing podcasts by researchers at University of Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're really amazing because of the guests. Let's be real here. (laughs) Uh, Like yourself. So that's, a, I feel like you gave a very empowering answer because sometimes, I mean, I know that the, they, the responses also need to be, you know, at a systemic societal level, but that I really like what you said is like, if somebody makes a comment and we don't say anything, we're, we're helping to kind of perpetuate this climate of, of stigma, no matter what it is about. Absolutely. Is there anything right now that you feel would help to create some some changes around the persistent transphobia or LGBTQ stigma? I just wonder why we're still, is it misinformation still? Like why why is it still persisting? That is a great question. I wonder that about many things. And I think that things persist when someone benefits from it. So I think there Mm -hmm. must be some benefit to someone from stigmatizing trans people. And I wrote a little bit about this in my dissertation that you were subjected to reading when we were students, I think. I sent you it was great. I, I'm <laughs> going to put a link to all your work. Just so you know. <laughs> Listeners, read Dr. Petit's work. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something, if we're going to stay at the, like what you as an individual can do and how we can understand the individual level, I think that there is something about, something that people get from the sense of, of being quote unquote, normal. And then if you identify someone else or some other group as not normal, then you get mm. power from that normalcy. And people won't look at the sort of the aspects of you that you're afraid of showing. You're exactly. 
Exactly. I mean, and I, also yeah. listeners, you could be re, you could be tweeting at JK Rowling, how transphobic she is right now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <Just> unbelievable. <laughs> like from a, a person of so much power and so much influence to be using that platform to, it, it's just, sometimes you just are like, wow, I, I just don't, I just don't understand wh- why you, you would, would need to put people, to push people down. Yeah, I do think you're absolutely right about insecurities that it brings out in people that they may not even be aware of. I had this really amazing conversation with someone when I was in college and I was starting, I was an LGBT activist, like staple things on the pole, kind of have rallies leading activists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That, but my knees were better. And he was a gay man who was very biphobic. And I was having a conversation with him about what is it about bi people that bothers you so much? And he says, you know, if I'm really honest, it's the sense that they have a choice and I don't. Mm. And it challenges something about me and who I think I am. Mm. That makes it hard for me to accept them. And I always really appreciated the honesty of that answer. And I think most of us, if we think about people or groups that we stigmatize, there's something about the existence of, of that group or those people that challenges something about who we feel we are. So, it's, I mean, a lot of times they think about the root of emotions. <laughs> and, you know, obviously there's probably a million or more perspectives on it. And I think a lot of it comes down to fear or love and people are afraid either of people finding out, you know, their own fears or their own insecurities. And so that's maybe reflective of that conversation where he was afraid of being judged himself or not accepted. And then you just project Mm -hmm. that outwards and it's so harmful. (sighs) Is there anything else you'd like to call the listeners to do or think about when it comes to um, stigma discrimination, the current state of the world? Oh, so much about the current state of the world. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have times of great discouragement, rage, sadness, pain, agony over the state of the world, I have to say, and what is made more visible to people now. But then I remember that what we're seeing now and in terms of people in the streets protesting is a positive sign. Mm. Like people are saying, we see reality, we are facing reality, and we are responding to it because we want a better world. Mm. That's a really and- awesome way to look at it. Well, it is. I mean, I've, it took me a while to get here, but <laughs> I have to say that that's really, really powerful and it gives me hope. And we need hope. Like, I think, how can we get up every day if we don't, you know, and the, the idea of uh, critical hopefulness is something I've been writing about, which has been talked about by Bell Hooks and Paul Freire and others, which is in, how can we sit in a uh, a context where we see injustice and still maintain that hope that changes and transformation is possible. So it's not just this sort of blind hope, like everything's going to be better, but it's like, wow, things are really, there's a lot of issues here. And I still mm-hmm. feel like transformation is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I love that there is a vision for what that transformation looks like. It's not just, um, we're going to tear down these dysfunctional institutions, but it's, we have a vision for what mm. a functional, healthy, loving, equitable, just society looks like. And we want to redirect our energy and resources to building that. I find that so inspiring. I know sometimes, you know, it, it's the, the energy is, 
is very geared towards dismantling, but it's also very interesting to think about what we want to build and what seeds we want to plant. You know, I've also been writing about the beloved community and about what does it mean if we were actually to, to build communities where we are caring about each other and, to, mm-hmm. and looking out for each other. And I mean, sometimes we've seen that like a tiny, tiny bit with COVID-19 with people making masks for people, anybody who needs them or people doing groceries. And so there's like sometimes out of, out of terrible things, there is some opportunity for communities, new communities or new building of communities. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the most exciting things I've seen recently online was rednecks for black lives. I think I saw. Did you see that? <laughs> I saw a I, picture and I didn't read about, I was like, Oh, I saw Amish people protesting too. Yeah. I mean, people see themselves as having a place in a movement for Black lives, whether or not they're Black, because they see what anti-Black racism has done Mm. and are willing and able to build community around that. Which is, I think, so powerful. It's so moving as well that maybe that's a sign of seeing our humanities as being linked yeah you're so awesome um so i just have one i promise you i'd only have one wild card question for you Uh oh okay (laughs) (laughs) i already warned you what it was so (laughs) forgotten (laughs) good so it'll sound still inspired um so if if you want to leave the listeners with a, a piece of advice or wisdom that has been shared with you or that you've gleaned over time is there anything you'd, you'd like to say, something that has moved you or touched you or inspires you? You did tell me that. And I was like, I don't know that I have a soundbite for that. <laughs> <laughs> it, can, it can be a story. It doesn't have to be a soundbite. <laughs> well, I had an epiphany recently. Um, I've been very tired and I was trying to reconcile my level of fatigue with my belief as Sweet Honey in the Rock sings so beautifully that we who believe in freedom cannot rest. Mm. And I would scream back, but I must rest. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true, right? It's true because I was like, my body was going, you know, you might not want to rest, but you're going to do that right now. I had not been listening carefully that they said, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. So if we are in beloved community with one another and we have a shared goal, then we as a community give each person their time to rest as we, mm. while we as a collective do not rest in the pursuit of freedom. Oh, that's amazing. It was so, I, I was like, I can't believe I'm a thousand years old before I figured this out, how important the we <laughs> was <Yeah>. in that <laughs> song. <laughs> and they're amazing. They, they even have a, a children's music. Mm-hmm album that I bought a lot of people who have kids they're so great you've seen them right oh yes yes <laughs> I think I saw <laughs> pictures of that so it's it's about we as a collective need to keep the struggle going and allow people to also rest as needed exactly I have a hammock I don't know if you do you have a hammock happening in your backyard I do not have a hammock <laughs> <laughs> so this could be uh I need to be inspired to go get a hammock. <laughs> could be a, a gift coming up. You don't know. Could oh. be happening. Wow. <laughs> Hammocks are really great. We have one in the yard. It's awesome. 
So listeners, hammocks are often good <laughs> unless you're in a really windy place. <laughs> no, hammocks would be awful, awesome here. Not awful, but awesome here because it's, you know, it's sunny and beautiful in the spring and lovely to be outside. Well, I hope that you are able to enjoy the rest of the afternoon. And I just want to say super grateful for you making the time to join us today, Dr. Tonya Petit. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. And I really appreciate being asked thoughtful questions and engaging with you around this. Thank you. And listeners, there'll be links to Dr. Petit's profile and her work. And I encourage you to read everything that she has written. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.